0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Something else. And what is your occupation?
1: Occupation.
0: What exactly do you do for a living, Mr. Little? I rip and run. You. I robs drug dealers. And exactly how long has this been your occupation, Mr. Little? Oh, I don't know exactly. I venture to say maybe about eight or nine years.
1: Mr. Little, how does a man rob drug dealers for eight or nine years and live to tell about it?
0: Date of time, I suppose. Hey, I'm Ben Bailey-Smith.
1: And I'm Sasha Bates.
0: And thank you for joining us once more for Shrink the Box. This is where we place our favourite TV characters on the therapist's couch and try to figure out why the hell they make such crazy decisions. We analyse the likes of Shiv from Succession, Mad Men's Don Draper and Arabella from I May Destroy You. Me, I'm an actor, no stranger to therapy myself, and Sasha here is a psychotherapist, and the expert, of course, especially when it comes to unraveling what makes these people so intriguing. And if we're lucky, we'll get some free advice on the way. That's a great deal. Sasha, tell us where that clip at the top was from.
1: That was Omar from The Wire. I know, such a fab series and it's slightly different, we're breaking with tradition here because normally we look at the protagonist of of, um, Mm. each of the shows we've looked at, whereas Omar's one of a huge ensemble Yeah, cast. it's like
0: Dickensian. I don't think you can it say is. who the yeah, no, main there's, guy is.
1: No, there's, there's several. But even though there's several, Omar really shines out. He's mm. he's quite striking, even though he's not in that many scenes. But people seem to love him more than anyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's kind of a, a fan favourite. I mean, you can see why. I mean, first off, we've never seen that. Char- the specifics of that character before. I mean, it's essentially a Robin Hood type character. He seems to have a conscience. He's also openly gay, <laughs> walks around with a shotgun, whistling a hunting we will go. I mean, he's like terrifying, endearing, funny, and serious, all in, in, in the same minute sometimes. Just an unforgettable character. And you can see why he stands out for so many people who are fans of this incredible show, man.
1: I mean, David Simon said that uh, the writer, the creator, he kind of evoked the notion of the Greek Greek mythology in writing it, and you can really see that. There's so many kind of mythological and fairy tale like references, but even though it's got this sort of epic feel to it, it's still really grimily real. I mean, it's set down in the projects of, of Baltimore with really real people with really real struggles and therapy is very much concerned with people's internal worlds. And all the characters have really strong internal worlds, but they're also fighting a very (laughs) challenging external world. And I think it's really important that we don't decontextualize the people that we're looking at. It's fascinating to see how the internal and the external kind of coexist in the wire.
0: And he's got previous with with this kind of content, David Simon, because, you know, when I was younger, I used to love, I was obsessed with police procedurals, NYPD Blue and stuff like that. Mm. But my favorite was Homicide, Life on the Street, which was r- created and written by David Simon. Ah. Um, but the first season of that was lifted almost verbatim from a, a real case that he'd been reporting on for the Baltimore Sun. So he was the crime reporter mm. for the Baltimore Sun in, in, in real life. And he used to go on ride-alongs with police and stuff. So he knew exactly what he was talking mm. about. So what I want to know from an audience perspective, how come we're not on the side of Idris Elba's character, Stringer Bell, this sort of uh, pragmatic, incredibly intelligent, gorgeously handsome, uh, second-in-command in in, in Barksdale's crew. But we are on the side of a a maniacal, gun-toting, duster-coat-wearing, whistling, stick-up badass, Omar Little. Um, It's interesting, that. And and plus, we reveal how fairy tales come to Baltimore and and why wearing a baseball jacket with a cravat to court is a great choice. (laughs) Oh, and uh, remember, there will be spoilers and naughty words. Welcome to shrink the box. Now, some of you may have watched it a long time ago, myself included. I mean, it came out 20 years ago. So here's here's the speediest recap I can possibly do <laughs> of the first Good two luck. seasons. Right, right. I'll take a breath. <laughs> so season one, homicide detective Jimmy McNulty, played by Dominic West, watches drug kingpin Avon Barksdale's nephew, D'Angelo Barksdale, played by Larry Gilliard, escape a murder conviction in court. McNulty complains to his mate, Judge Phelan, played by Peter Geraghty, that the Barksdale crew could be responsible for more murders. Word gets back to McNulty's boss, who's not pleased he has more cases to solve. And reluctantly, a team of detectives are set up in a basement to investigate. Via phone tapping, which is what the wire refers to, we then see into the daily lives of the drug lords, their dealers these young kids in in housing projects, and even our man who we're analysing this week, Omar, who basically is this kind of crazed Robin Hood figure who who robs the dealers with a shotgun. Series 2 is set in the dockyards of Baltimore. Uh, And this time we follow a set of stevedores and their bosses as they struggle to make ends meet. Now, a container of 13 dead women is found. Some of the workers are being shady, to say the least. Uh, and we also continue following the Barksdale crew and Omar, who have built this huge beef with each other, uh, and more of that later. Okay, here we are again, back in the reception at Sasha's office. I've just gone to to get a glass of water and um, get up to date on my, my Women's Weekly. Um, and across me on the couch for this week's Two O'Clock, Sasha, who have we got?
1: We've got Omar Devone Little, who is 29 or thereabouts, as he says in that courtroom scene that we heard a clip of, he doesn't know exactly because we don't know anything about his parents. And it, it seems that he was brought up with his grandmother. He comes from the projects of West Baltimore, very poor part of Baltimore. He is unapologetically gay in an environment where I can't imagine that that went down too well. He's got a boyfriend called Brandon, who sadly gets murdered on drug dealer Avon Barksdale's orders. And as we heard, that's his profession. He robs drug dealers. So he's no stranger to living life dangerously.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's have a listen to the man in action. Hey, look, I ain't never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral. Are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off... Just like the you, ...the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. got the briefcase. So on the game, though, right? <laughs> uh, yes, the one and only Omar there, played by the uh, much-missed Michael K. Williams. And that's from Season 2, Episode 6, uh, All Prologue. Um, of The Wire, written by David Simon, Ed Burns, Joy Kecken, and Rafael Alvarez and directed by Steve Schill. We'll give you the full credits for all the clips used at the end of this podcast. What would be the first thing do you think you might notice about Omar's personality sat opposite you?
1: I mean the first thing that you notice about Omar is he is so cool. He's cool in both senses of the word. He's like a real cool dude. He doesn't care what people think. He's mm. a lone wolf. It he made
0: me want to smoke cigarettes again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Definitely. He just rides around <laughs> the place in his long coat and he's just his own man. He's he's brilliant. But he's also cool in the sense of he acts from a very cool and calm state of self-regulation. He never seems to break a sweat. He never seems to raise his heartbeats he plans robberies meticulously he doesn't act out of rage he doesn't act on impulse he knows exactly what he's doing he's always in control that coldness that outward sign of of no turbulence whatsoever Makes me think that something pretty bad has happened to him in his childhood, that he has learned to control his emotions, that he's learned to just stay so self-regulated.
0: Because there's that scene, isn't there, somewhere halfway through the first season, after his boyfriend's been killed, which is the closest we see to him sort of losing it, but it's very brief. Mm. And then after that, he's just plotting. And they come hunting for him, Mm. can't find him. So they burn his van. And, Mm. And when we cut to him, he's just watching through the window.
1: I know, it's sort Just of relax, chilling. Just relax, little
0: baby on his lap.
1: I think that such control in the face of, of such fierce provocation, that shows practice. He's known how to do this for a long time. He's had to learn to hide his fear. I mean, I think that anybody that lives with an abusive caregiver or who's watched their caregiver be abused or unpredictable has to learn to hide any outward sign of emotion. Because if you think about it... If you can blend into the background, if you can almost look like you're not even breathing, you're not going to be noticed. So you're not going to provoke that abusive person to attack you or to notice you in any way. Or it might even be that if you show any fear or any emotion, that even excites the abuser. So they're going to go at you even stronger. So it's a life-saving skill. And he's clearly taken that into our life. I say clearly, we don't actually know that much about Omar. I'm speculating, but often you don't know that much about your clients. Often they don't want to talk about their past or they're not able to for whatever reason. So you do have to sort of just go with what you're seeing and make educated guesses at why somebody would present so calmly in the face of such fierce provocation.
0: With these intense, high emotional states... There can also be physical reactions, right? Do we do we see any of that within Omar?
1: Well, trauma is a biological response to a life-threatening event. And a lot of people think that trauma refers to an event, but it actually refers to the responses that happen within our bodies and brains when faced with danger. And what happens first is that even before the thinking part of the brain has registered what's going on, physiology does kick in. And there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. And it's like the body's smoke detector. It's constantly scanning the environment for danger. And when it senses threat, it sounds the alarm. And that unleashes a whole raft of physical effects, one of which is to flood the body with the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. And there's different ways that the body responds to this hormonal change, the most well-known being the fight-or-flight responses. And Omar does, in a sense, fight back. He plans his revenge, and this process of taking action in that way, it's a way of dissipating and relieving that hormonal buildup. But you could also read his stillness as a different type of response. It could be that he's just had so much repeated threat in his life that his amygdala's become oversensitized and it's just stopped responding to all the cortisol. And so his stillness might be a result of underreactivity. reactivity He's lost the ability to distinguish what's dangerous from what isn't.
0: So how do you explain the tenderness, the gentle... like Even in that scene with the baby, and he seems to be taking care of, of, of the, the baby's mum as well, the gentle, loving qualities he has towards Brandon.
1: He is so tender and so loving and so caring and quite paternalistic to Mm. Brandon, the boyfriend in the first series. And then there's another boyfriend in the second one. I think that there is a very tender soul in there that has had to just be shut down. Right. He he hasn't been able to show that. Again, I suspect that if his parents, which given the environment he, he lives in, were quite possibly drug addicts or drug dealers or, or abusive in some way, you'd have to keep that bit very hidden. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. And we do also know that at some point he goes to live with his grandmother and it seems that they had a great relationship. So you just need one attachment figure. Mm-hmm. And if you could have a really strong bond with them if you can be loved you can learn to love and he's clearly giving that that love to others Mm. but not when faced with danger when he's faced with danger that has to be shut away for for his own for safety's sake
0: obviously he keeps his cards incredibly close to his chest what might be the next thing that we notice about his character that, that 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 might be an issue. He
1: is somebody who's very private, but he's also very vigilant. He's an observer. He watches. He knows exactly mm. what people are going to do. I mean, there's a bit where he hooks up with detectives McNulty and Greggs. Um, And he tells them where to find Bird, Bird being one of the drug dealers that they're searching for because he's he's killed someone. He doesn't just know where they're going to find him, even though nobody else knows where he is. Omar does. But he also knows exactly how Bird will react when they go after him. And he's right, (laughs) which again to me suggests early trauma. He clearly had to strategize to make his world safe. And I think he's a, a watcher because he had to watch what was going on, again, so as not to provoke any threat. So if you're around unpredictable people or violent people. It can be the matter of life or death if you can watch their moods, if you can tell from the step of the way they shut the door, the way they sort of walk towards you, the land of their footfall. You learn to really minutely read all the little clues. And so you get very good at noticing.
0: Yeah. Mm. Now, if I had those skills, that skill set you just uh, described so well, I think the moment I found out that, I will realize that I was gay in an incredibly homophobic world. Mm. I think I probably would have used those skills to hide it, you know, for as yeah. long as possible. Yeah, Omar, we don't know what stage he might have come out, but he clearly is ha- he has absolutely zero interest mm. in hiding anything yeah. about his sexuality. What does this mean? I mean, I, I, this is the second time watching it. And I get a a feel of sort of pride for him. But I don't know, like, on a deeper level, what that means. For someone who's so able to control everything, why would he choose not to hide it?
1: I think that sense of fearlessness that he's had to develop because mm. if he shows fear it could be curtains kind right. of thing so he's learned to shut off bits of himself so I think the fear about well what will they think of me if I'm gay he's shut that off as well right. and he's just saying do you know what this is me but that takes such a lot of sort of psychic energy to be able to say I don't care what society thinks I mean he's about I was working out he's I think I was about the same age as him at the, at the time so I grew up in the 80s I know what it was like for my friends <sighs> who were gay growing up in the 80s. It was not Rural. fun yeah. at all. And most people did hide it. Most of my friends came out at sort of university age. They didn't want to, to say any any younger because it was still quite um, stigmatized. Whereas Omar makes no apologies for it. And in fact, a friend of mine was saying when I said I was re-watching this, he, went, he, he said, oh God, Omar was such a fantastic character because it was the first time he'd ever seen a gay character where being gay wasn't something to apologise for it wasn't the cause of internal conflict he it's just, also
0: not the story right it's, it's, it's the, story the story is not that he's yeah. gay yeah uh, exactly whereas you know a, a lesser show that would have been a whole storyline yeah. oh my god we find out he's gay and blah 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 mm-hmm. it it almost feels incidental at yeah.
1: times yeah as well Kim Greggs is also yeah. gay one of the detectives yeah, yeah. and similarly she doesn't hide it but you get a sense there is some internalised homophobia going on because um, Absolutely, they is. have to they, they both live in this sort of world of toxic masculinity, again, that takes quite a bit of psychic energy to not have that impact. Because we talked a lot with our other characters about the importance of needing self-worth, of feeling loved, feeling valued, feeling that you matter. You need that from your caregivers, but you're also a product of your environment. So it also matters about the messages the environment is sending to you. And if the environment is saying you should be straight. And also the wider context of America is also saying you should be white. So, yeah, I mean, definitely. I don't know how that impacts on on you it's, seeing a cast of, so, you know, black characters. It's huge.
0: It's absolutely huge. And you've got, you know, Kima and Omar both being gay and both being black in this world where homophobia aside, you also are expected to act a certain way if you're black. Mm. So everybody... On the other side of the this drug war, you know, the criminal side is black. Everybody. If you made the show today, someone would probably complain. But David <laughs> Simon is literally saying this is this is fact. This is what's happening in the projects. There aren't there. Are, <laughs> there's no nice white middle class drug dealer in the projects working with these guys. They are all black. But of course, what that means for Kima and Omar is there will always be that slight thing in coming up against white institutions where it's like you're probably involved with, with crime. The fact that they both play so strongly against type, I think is fascinating. Mm. But yeah, the, the, the sense of institutional racism throughout The Wire has to have a bearing on both characters and you feel it throughout. The project boys are constantly referred to as yo's and mopes. Mm-hmm. It's all racial terminology, but the black police use it just the same as the white, which tells me that racism is so intrinsic there that it's like there's almost two types of black person now in 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 America in 2002 mm-hmm. you know which uh, chris rock famously referred to in, in in a routine that he did once about the difference between black people and n words you know it's almost like a legendary bit for for black americans you know who feel like you can't put us all in these categories and in the west baltimore that we're presented with being black is, at best, it is a constant uphill struggle, and at worst, it's a death sentence. Mm. So Omar's got that on his head as well, and he, you know he's a, he's a bit of a contradiction. This guy, and he wields a shotgun for a living, yet he doesn't like swearing. He complains if someone's got like using too much potty mouth. Mm. Um, and after the break, I think. What we'll do, we'll talk a little bit about his upside-down moral code because I think it's fascinating. And also, we'll look at why we think Omar's a rock star but we feel much less sympathy for Stringer Bell, who we all know Idris Elba, especially in this country. He's a kind of a rock star, (laughs) isn't he? He's constantly linked to being the the next James Bond. And also, we'll have a look at uh, the streets of Baltimore and their link to fairy tales. So please, guys, don't go... Anywhere because we're back right after this. Unless you're a subscriber, of course, then you know you're one of our faves. Uh and that means you don't get any ads. You don't need to open this door, man, for a huff and puff. Come on now, buddy. Here's your chinny chin chin. Oh um, uh, boy, you best roll out. We up in here with a Mac tank. Well, I think's not Terrell. I think it's not. <laughs> Hey, it's Ben here. Shrink the Box is sponsored by BetterHelp. And most of us are very busy. We find it hard to fit in extra, well, extra anything into our day. But what if you had another hour every day? Imagine that. I'd start by working through the massive list of TV shows you guys have got me watching for Shrink. Thing is, we'd all love more time. But actually, if something's really important to us, we prioritize it and make time. And therapy can help you identify what matters to you. And how you can do more of it. So, if you're thinking of starting, give BetterHelp a try. I know I use it; it's great. You get matched with a registered therapist. You can switch if it's not clicking for for no additional charge. It's all online, and that saves you those precious minutes, right? So, with over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash shrink the box today. To get 10% off your first month. That's better. dot e-lp.com slash shrink the box. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the
1: thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So
0: follow The 7 right now. The Anime Awards this year were amazing! And I'm still not over all of the amazing live musical performances. Honestly, same. The Anime Awards may be over, but our discussion is not. If, like us, you're still not over the Anime Awards show and the results, join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Listening each week to our breakdown of everything that happened at the 2024 Anime Awards and hear news on the other anime and pop culture that you care about. If you don't want to miss all the post-Anime Awards discussion, then tune in to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec-Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents... I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're gonna say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And we are back, Uh, Sash. Omar says over and over again that he would never harm a civilian mm-hmm. and only targets those who are in the game. Why has he formed these rules for himself, you think? Well,
1: again, I think it's very like Beth Harmon from The Queen's Gambit, who we put on the couch in the last episode. Do go back and listen if you haven't already. So Omar, like Beth, clearly had a very chaotic upbringing. And that's really overwhelming to a young child's developing mind and their nervous system so he's had to find his own way to make sense of it so Beth's world was the chessboard his is the streets and just as Beth I think said I'm not going to be a pawn I'm going to be a queen I'm going to I'm going to master this game Omar wants to be kind of like king of the streets he he, he says
0: he says doesn't he if if you take a shot at the king you you better not miss. miss.
1: He does, yeah. He really does see himself. It's almost like he's this mythological figure striding through. I mean, what came to mind? Because I was thinking of David Simon's reference to the Greek myths. And to me, it felt like Omar was one of the one of the heroes. So he was a bit like Achilles, who was dipped in waters that made him invincible, apart from his one Achilles heel. And Omar reminded me of Achilles because he thinks he's invincible. And it's often thought that Achilles was in a relationship with Petro and he is also trying to avenge Patroclus' death in the same way that Omar is avenging
0: Brandon's death. But yeah, so we did mention fairy tales at the top. Where do fairy tales fit into the <laughs> grimy streets of Baltimore?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's strange. There's so many references. He He whistles farmer in the dell when he's sort of off of course, on one yeah. of his missions.
0: In here, bae. you come at the king, you best not miss.
1: I think we heard a clip from him, him quoting lines from the big bad wolf. He said, I'm yeah, going to huff down, and puff yeah. and Don't blow huff your huff hands puff. down. Yeah. Says, yeah. Fairy tales, they were a bit like um, horror stories for, for kids in that they show kids that it's okay to be frightened. It's okay to feel like the world is dark and scary, but it also shows them that there's there's a way out. And I think I think there's a sort of an allusion to that, just as there's an allusion to, to mythology. Taking it back to the more traditional psychotherapists, Carl Jung was a huge one for archetype which are in a way sort of fairy tale like characters, mm. the kind of the wise woman and the you know the the kings and the queens and there's and the good mother and I think there is something in our psyche that is sort of drawn to those archetypes or those big characters.
0: Yeah, and you know he's even got his own chorus, hasn't he? Because when he appears, you hear voices everywhere saying, "Oh, yeah. Mark coming!" Yeah, and he he sort of looks like a superhero in that long duster coat as well, or, or like. Um, you know those scenes from classic westerns where the yeah. the, the the lone uh, you know either protagonist or antagonist a- appears into town and you would hear probably whistling if you had any old morricone mm-hmm. on the soundtrack or something like that a big duster, probably a big shotgun, and and you'll see people scatter. There's there's a lot of that. Plus, he refers to himself in the third person.
1: He does, yeah, yeah no, he does. It it is like he sees a, himself as a superhero, which again makes me think that if he was this vulnerable little boy, maybe watching his mum getting beaten up, or you know, killing herself with drugs, something
0: horrific happens. Something there's horrific, no
1: yeah, exactly, and. I think it's made him sort of hypersensitive to injustice as well, and it's almost as if that little boy told himself, "I'm powerless now, mm. but I am going to right wrongs yeah. when I'm older. I'm going to become the superhero." I'm not. I mean, I also don't think it's coincidental that he drug he robs drug dealers for a living. You know, it's almost like he's avenging Brandon's death, but is he also avenging his mother's death? If his mother died from drugs, maybe that's yeah. why he wants to and punish he's clean drug dealers. As well. We
0: don't. We never see him no, drink. to no. do, do drugs. He just smokes a lot of cigarettes and yeah. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he he seeks justice because he's clearly very intelligent and must be able to see how slow the wheels of justice mm. turn mm. in west baltimore yeah so he prefer to uh, dish it out himself that said we can never condone killing just because you feel like it's the right thing to do so why the hell do we feel more sympathy for him than Stringer Bell? String a bell and Avon Barksdale order killings because they think it's the right thing to do. So what's the difference?
1: There's something about their lust for power. I mean, Stringer and Avon, they want power. They want people to be scared of them. They want money. They want status. They want all the things that that can bring. It's like they want all these minions. Omar doesn't seem to want anything other than just to make a more just world. He Mm. doesn't have minions. He doesn't seem to want people to work for him. He seems to have what we would call an internal locus of evaluation, which means that what matters to him is what Omar thinks of Omar. He doesn't care what other people think. Whereas Avon and Stringer, they seem to have an external locus of evaluation. They care what people think. They want to be seen as powerful. Omar just wants power so as not to have to be that vulnerable little boy again. So to me, that's the difference.
0: Do you think he loves himself?
1: The relationships with his boyfriends, to me, don't seem that equal. They seem like he's the protector, he's the paternalistic figure. And he's like, again, it's that sort of rescuer self. I think he probably loves that part of himself. He loves feeling powerful when he once wasn't. He loves feeling like he can give back when he couldn't or wasn't given to. But I also think there's a part of him that's probably quite self-loathing because of living, again, in that environment where He's told, don't be gay, don't be black, this is a white, straight oh. world. If you live in a world that tells you you're not fitting in, it's very hard to not have a bit of you that thinks, oh, there must be something wrong with me.
0: Yeah. And also, I think a lot of the criminal characters in The Wire are probably dealing with self-loathing because we're, we're reminded quite often, sometimes subtly, sometimes explicitly, that if they applied what they apply mm. to the streets to something legit, they could be amazing. I mean, we even see Stringer Bell in a legit class for macroeconomics. He's yeah. clearly, uh, you know, intelligent enough to run a, a legitimate business. And Wallace and D'Angelo are sort of soldiers in the Barksdale crew. One much more significant than the other, because Wallace is sort of right at the bottom of the pile. He started as a lookout. He's one of the youngest 16. But D'Angelo, crucially, is Avon, the big boss, is Avon's nephew. So he's sort of given a loftier position. He's like the overseer of the low-rise projects. Wallace is probably the most explicit in that he's actually, he's just, he says, look, I, I want to get out of this. Yeah. And, and D'Angelo as well. I just want to go somewhere where I don't have to chase my own shadow. Yeah. and You just think you've got the intelligence but you're just trapped. Oh, it's and,
1: heartbreaking. Oh, they it's absolutely so heartbreaking. clever. That's, that's the beauty of mm, it. You know, it
0: should make yeah. us feel heartbroken. If it doesn't, then we've got we've probably got bigger problems than Omar. <laughs> you know, and, and obviously everything escalates. Anytime it looks like someone could get out of that world or something like that, something escalates, more drama comes their way. We see with Omar himself, he has this beef with the Barksdale crew because they killed his boyfriend, Brandon. And, you know, He's taking revenge. He's got a price on his head at the same time. Could he get out of this world? I think they all have that ability, but I just can't see what the, the root is. I mean, even his mate, Butchie, we're hearing this clip here. Uh, Butchie played by uh, S. Robert Morgan, tells him to retire. A little something for a rainy day.
1: You built up a right nice-sized nest these past couple
0: of years. Every time you make me think about backing off some. Back off to what? Later, budge. And you hear it there. It's like, it's almost what we're pleading at the screen. Like mm. with Wallace, stay at your grandma's. Mm. D'Angelo, get out of town. Change oh, your life.
1: It's it's so heartbreaking. You really see what they're all up against. I mean, D'Angelo... Almost, he's on the point of taking a deal to go off and be in Mm -hmm. witness protection, have have another life. His own mother says, you know, family's more important and persuades him to take the jail sentence. What hope have they got? Yeah, I mean, we heard Omar saying there, well, why, in, in his own way, why would I, what would I do? Where would I go? I mean, no one's going to employ these people. I mean, it's tragic. They're so clever. And if only they could have been put into a different environment, they could have had very different lives. But we now know so much more about how structural racism, institutional racism, all of these things keep people down. And of course, they've got the potential emotionally to change. We know a lot about epigenetics and intergenerational trauma shows us that genes get changed depending on environment. So just as that's a bad thing, if your genes are going to get changed in a negative way by constantly being stuck in the projects they can also be changed in the other way if you're given you know in a more positive way and also
0: you you know what you could bring to the table if you could get out would just be so much more unique and powerful than almost everybody that you're working alongside i used to believe genuinely that there was no point in trying to be an actor because if if you know i'd look at the color of my hands and 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 think about the council estate i came from and just think No one from here makes it as an actor. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Mm. Now I see, oh my God, it's like a superpower. Mm. The two things that I have. (laughs) So it's just that thing of, can you just get over that hurdle Mm. into this other world? And I suppose we should also recognize that the T word, therapy, that that you and I are so interested in, the reason that we're here doing this show, that is not a word that is going to be bandied about uh, projects in the west side of, of of Baltimore.
1: There would be no money for therapy, but there would be no appetite for it as well. It would feel so alien, as mm. so many things would feel alien. I mean, as you say, there's so much potential. There's nothing in neuronal networks that can't be changed. We now know so much about brain plasticity, which says that. Brain neurons can regrow at any age. We used to think that they were fused and fixed. You know, you can teach no dog new tricks. You know, you can change the shape of your brain. You can change your nervous system's reaction to things. But you need that support. You need somebody to say, you matter. We want to hear what you've got to say. We care about you. You have value. Mm. If you don't have that support, doesn't have to be therapy if that feels like a million miles away, but you just need somebody or a community that says, we believe in you. That's all you need. But even if Omar had those things, No one's gonna employ him. He's never had a he's never he's never done a job, he's not got a reference. People are terrified of him. Um, Scar on his face. Yeah. So, you know, there's nothing inherently in him that doesn't say he could get out, but he's battling a lot of societal pressures.
0: He's battling everything. The entire world is against him. And that's the amazing thing about the wire. You know, it tries to show us every level of the society that you're living in. It has cause and effect. You know, every action has a positive or negative reaction. We never hear about rehabilitation. Mm. You know, that's not something that it was even joked about. You know, Mm. the heroes, in inverted commas, of of this, I suppose you could say are, you know, the, the cops who are working the wire, you know, McNulty, Kima, Carver, and Herc and, and, and Lieutenant Daniels, but they just want to put these guys away. Mm. They're not there going, oh, wouldn't it be great if these... <laughs> you know, there's a sort of feel from Kima definitely towards Bubbles mm. that, the, you know, rehabilitation, both in terms of d- drugs getting clean and in terms of around your life should be something, mm. you know, available to him and she even tries to help out financially. Bubbles is one of the characters of course who you know just brings tears to the eyes whenever you see him because you it's such a fantastic performance by the actor he, he he's his eyes are constantly telling you he'd love to get out and he just can't and Kima can see it greg's uh, detective greg she can see it and that's why she's sort of constantly drawn to him and wanting to help him, not just have him as a CI. Whereas McNulty's very much like, yeah, what'd you find out, bubs? You know, just give us some more information and, and bug her off.
1: And, and Bubs is also it's such a good storyline kind of shows the impossibility of getting out yeah. because there is this one moment where he absolutely decides yes I'm going to do it he stays clean for three days mm-hmm. and the only person that's supporting him is Kima Greggs and she arranges to meet him on day four I think to take him to buy new clothes and then she gets shot she's in and hospital to, I think to
0: sort out accommodation
1: yeah well so yeah she's a, helping, a
0: profound change a in profound his life.
1: change she's really helping him to, um, to make that change and then then she doesn't turn up because she's been shot and he waits for her and he realises that yet again this is this recurring pattern mm-hmm. for all of them. No, I can't do it, there is no escape. The one person that was going to help me, she's not here. So he goes straight back into his old life. Nobody wants anything to change mm-hmm. because then they that would- They
0: have to question their own would, situation. Exactly. Oh, it's brutal. Brutal. There's us and there's them. This is the way the world is. You know, the cops hate the cops above them as much as they hate the drug dealers and murderers. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the cops are just in their own game. They're mm. all playing the game. Yeah. There's not really much sense of anybody wanting to change the system. It's just let's work within the system we've got, whereas mm. the system is the thing that's keeping them all down. I mean, in, in therapy, there has traditionally always been so much about people's internal worlds. But now we're belatedly catching up with the notion that it is also the context that you live in. And if you have overlapping discrimination like Omar does then you get through the first layer of combating your your own problems with not having had parents or or not having had an education, then you've got the levels above of your community thinking, oh, you're not quite right. You better change and fit in to conform to the norms that we want you to have. And then you've got the whole global thing as well as saying this is a a white world, particularly in America, of course, and a straight world. So at each level, he's being told you're wrong. So of course his sense of self is going to take such a battering. And rather than be battered, he has kind of gone to the opposite extreme and said, no, fuck you, basically. I'm going to be gay. I'm going to rob drug dealers. I'm going to play this game in the best way I know how. And I kind of think good on him. If he hasn't got an option, he's he's adapted to his environment and he's surviving in an environment that's telling him not to be who he is.
0: Okay, well, look, you guys at home, uh, or wherever you are listening to this podcast, if you want us to investigate another world filled with complex characters that you find utterly compelling and absorbing, make sure you email us at shrinkthebox at shrink That's shrinkthebox at something without the G else com. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for all the emails so far. Uh, everybody out there you don't you don't know how much it means to me and sash because we're starting something new here and we're just hoping that we're reaching you out there and you've you've just vindicated all our hopes so thank you and thank you simon from auckland in new zealand who says that uh he would love to see jimmy mcnulty on the therapy couch um, the fact that colleagues and friends constantly say it is bad for people, but yet he goes against authorities all in the name of good, proper police work in such a self-destructive way is fascinating. Please, could this happen? Loving the show so far. Sash, we got an email from Auckland. It's a bit show-offy to put that one first, but I had to do it.
1: I can't believe it. Auckland. <laughs> it's the other side of the world. Auckland, How New exciting! Zealand.
0: That's incredible. And I'm sure we will. I mean, the deeper we've got into the show, the more I've thought about the endless possibilities, the endless characters that we can uh, dig into. And I think from the start with The Wire, we said, mm, you know, you could yeah. do. Anyone. Almost anyone. So uh, hold tight, Simon. We'll, we'll be with you. I'm certain of that. And I've got one here from Sylvia in Flandelo. I lived in Flandelo for a little while. What are the odds? Bizarrely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Sylvia, you might think I'm joking, but I was shooting a Welsh-speaking drama for S4C and Channel 4 called The Light in the Hall, which uh, you can watch on all four now if you fancy it. A thriller set in in, in rural South Wales, Carmarthenshire, Carmarthenshire. I actually loved living in Llandero, mm. loved it.
1: Did you just learn to speak Welsh?
0: Fortunately, I was the only English speaking character. I was going so to say, that's quite an London, ask. But we shot every scene in English and in Welsh. Wow. Anyway, sorry, Sylvia. Sylvia says she wants to see Catherine Kaywood from Happy Valley mm. on the couch. I mean, Happy Valley right now, now the, 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 the trilogy, the three seasons have come to an end, is being talked about as one of the all-time great British TV shows. So I think it would be really um, remiss of us not to take on Catherine. Uh, Sylvia says um, she's just amazing. What personal cost to her apparent resilience. I think that's a great shout and I definitely think we'll do that. Thanks, Sylvia. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, everyone. Um, We're going to add these suggestions to our burgeoning uh, list and we'll have a think. We'll we'll, we'll get back to you. And please do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, you know, wherever you get your podcasts and get the new episodes and share them with your friends. Leave us a little review. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, And if you want to listen to Shrink the Box, ad-free like a true G, then subscribe to Extra Takes. Uh, Your subscription gets you ad-free episodes of this show, plus ad-free episodes and access to weekly subscriber exclusive extra episodes from our good friends over at Kermode and Mayo's Take. So start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts or by visiting extratakes.com. Huge thank you, as always, to our production team. Production management is Lily Hambly. The assistant producer is Bashak Ayrton. Social media is Jonathan Imieri. The studio mix engineer is Jay Beal. The senior producer is Selina Reem, And executive producer is Simon Poole. Now, back to the matter at hand. Sasha, what new client is booked in for next week?
1: Oh, next week we've got someone who is very rude. So watch out. She can't get enough sex.
0: My (laughs) favourite.
1: She's a little light fingered. And this I want to fuck a priest. Catholic? Yes. A good one? Yes. Looks good in the. Yes. I understand. Do you really want to fuck the priest or do you want to fuck God? Can you fuck God? Oh, yes. Just, just please tell me how to not fuck a priest before I get arrested. Well, I don't think fucking a priest will make you feel as powerful as you think it will. Can you just tell me what to do? You know. You already know what you're going to do. Everybody does. What? You've already decided what you're going to do. So what's the point in you? You know what you're going to do.
0: What is the point in you, Sasha? <laughs>
1: I ask myself that daily.
0: <laughs> of course, that was Fleabag written and played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, and that was Fiona Shaw's voice. You could hear with her as the therapist. In fact, Phoebe Waller-Bridge called up Andrew Scott and asked him to play Hot Priest before she'd even written it for him. She would said, if he'd said no, I don't know if I've been able to write that part. Which is incredible. And she did a similar thing with me, not for the hot priest, unfortunately. I clearly wasn't immediately hot and uh, uh, immediately <laughs> religious enough looking to uh, to take on that part without auditioning. No, she asked me to play the, the nerdy team leader in, uh, I think it's episode three. And I was like, sure. I had no idea what the show was going to be like. I just thought it's Phoebe; it will probably be quite good. Mm. It, it won't be shit. Do you know what I mean, that was my <laughs> thinking. So I'll, I'll do it. I had no idea it would be iconic, no. and I don't just mean my performance, guys. <laughs> so yeah, Feedback well, next week.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it absolutely is not shit. <laughs> quite the opposite. It's it's amazing, and I can't wait to discuss so much there's things like why sex is a bit of a crutch for her. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about breaking the fourth wall. We've got another shocking doorknob moment. Ooh. And yes, I want to hear more about how you ended up in Fleabag.
0: Mm, well, we'll get into that definitely. It all will be revealed next week. So, what series are we going to watch? Actually, uh,
1: we're going to watch both series, one and two, because we can't. Oh, not yeah, we talk have to talk about, about the heartbreak. Yeah, no, you're right. But the episodes are only half an hour. Bonus. Uh, whizzes by, and they are all available on the BBC iPlayer and on Amazon Prime.
0: Right, OK, I'm off to open up a guinea pig cafe, but uh, I'm not going to chat up any members of the clergy. That's um, a relief. Yeah. All right, ta da. Bye. All right, time to give credit where credit's due. Here's our list of clips from The Wire, created by David Simon. The opening clip you heard where Omar. Michael K. Williams is in court talking to state's attorney, Eileen Nathan, Susan Rome, and a second clip with the smug defense attorney, Maori Levy. They were both from season two, episode six, all prologue of The Wire. Written by David Simon, Ed Burns, Joy Keckin, and Rafael Alvarez, directed by Steve Schill. And just before the break, Omar, talking about the hairs on his chinny-chin-chin, that's season one, episode nine, Game Day, directed by Milcho Manchevsky. Story by David Simon and teleplay by David H. Melnick and Shamit Choxie. When Butchie tells Omar to give up, that's Hot Shots, Season 2, Episode 3. The director was Elodie Keane. Teleplay was by David Simon and the story was by David Simon and Ed Burns and writers Joy Keken, David Simon and Rafael Alvarez. The Wire is produced by Blown Deadline Productions and Home Box Office, HBO. You can stream it on Now TV, Sky, or buy on the likes of Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Chili, and Google Play. Go to justwatch.com for more details. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.